If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. We are moving right along in Mark's Gospel. As we turn to God's Word, let's not do it without also turning once again to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed rejoice that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And yet, Father, these will be just words on a page unless you, by your spirit, illumine us, giving us understanding of the truth of your word and the ability and the desire to put it into practice, to conform our lives to your revealed will. And so, Father, would you please Be merciful and gracious to your people now, giving us um, attention to your word, opening your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your redeemed people. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to begin this look at Mark 10, 1 through 12, with some words that probably most of us are familiar um, with. Um, There are some words that go back in form to 1549 and then updated a bit in 1662. Here are the words. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God. And in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee. And is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. Yeah, we've heard that, maybe not in those exact words, but uh, to be sure, that is the form of solemnization of matrimony from the Book of Common Prayer. Well, back in uh, 2010, in response to a letter that I sent to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the State of Ohio, I got a certificate the authority to solemnize marriages. And it said that me having produced credentials, etc., etc., is hereby authorized and licensed to solemnize marriages within this estate. And if you want to see it, it's right here afterwards. Now, it's not just the Book of Common prayer of the Church of England or the Anglican Church, and it's not just the office of the Secretary of State of the State of Ohio that has something to say about marriage. The Bible itself 
has something to say about marriage. God has something to say about marriage. Well, where are we in Mark 10? Well, we're in, where are we in Mark? We're in Mark 10, but where are we? Well, remember, the who is Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? That's a grid, a helpful grid that we should see in all of our study of Mark. We've already made it to the continental divide of Mark in chapter 8 where there's a confession that Jesus is the Christ and then there's a call to follow Jesus. A confession and a call. And the rest of Mark, as Jesus turns toward Jerusalem, he's also turning toward his disciples and explaining what it means to be a disciple, what a life of following Jesus looks like. Because Jesus wants to make sure that it's not an empty profession of faith in him, but rather a full profession of faith that makes itself known through a life full of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following Jesus. Indeed, as we've seen over the last few weeks, following Jesus means that we've got to pray, as the disciples found out when they couldn't cast out the demon. There's a call to service, not trying to be the greatest. There's a call to true tolerance and welcoming others in the name of Jesus. There's a call to fight sin, to suffer with hope, and to be at peace with one another. Well, our approach to the text this morning will be to take a look at what Jesus teaches about marriage as well as divorce. In our text, we will see Jesus teaching the crowds, the Pharisees, and his disciples. Those who were with him then, and those to whom Mark wrote, and to those of us hearing these words now. Please join me as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he, that being Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea, And beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's look at the first two verses. Jesus teaches 
the crowds. In verse 1, we see the scene. The ministry in Galilee has come to an end. Now Jesus is in Judea and then on to Jerusalem where he will face his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Notice crowds gathered. This is the first time that in Mark that we see crowds in the plural. I mean, you can imagine that Jesus continues to draw people to hear him, to hear him speak, to see him do miracles. And what is Jesus' custom? What's his habit? What is Jesus doing? He's teaching them. We read, as was his custom, he taught them. Remember in Mark 6, when Jesus saw the crowd, And our text says he had compassion on them. And how does Jesus demonstrate compassion to people? He teaches them. Have you all ever thought about that? Part of what may be demonstrating true compassion to people is teaching them. Parents teaching children. Friends teaching one another. Jesus demonstrates compassion for people by teaching them. And we see in verse 2, the Pharisees ask a question. Now I'm including this in Jesus teaching the crowds because it's, it's in this context of the crowds being around Jesus that the Pharisees come up to Jesus to test him. Four times in Mark, we read that the Pharisees test Jesus. In chapter 8, here we are, uh, excuse me, chapter 8 and chapter 10, where we are again in chapter 12. But we also saw it earlier when Satan tested Jesus. It's the same word. Satan wasn't asking Jesus a question. He was testing him. The Pharisees, we see by their attitude, are not interested in guidance or instruction. They are rather wanting to ensnare Jesus and trap him. We've seen the hostility toward Jesus build. This testing is tempting to try out his defenses, to catch him unguarded. In other words, they are trying to find out which side of Jesus, which side of this issue of matter of divorce is Jesus on. They want a yes or no answer. They want to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma to test him. Now the Pharisees, like Satan in the wilderness, we will see, mishandle God's word. They've already been making a plan to destroy him. We saw in chapter 3, verse 6. And indeed, they are carrying out the work of Satan. They're mishandling God's word, as we will see. They will misinterpret it, and therefore they will misapply it. Here we see the importance of being grounded in sound doctrine. Understanding the approach that we are to have to God's word. We approach it from below in humility, not from above in arrogance. Now before we go on, a few comments. Where Jesus is now is the same region where John the Baptist ministered. And remember what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist condemned Herod's marriage to Herodias. As unlawful. And what happened? He was arrested and killed. Interestingly, because 
John the Baptist was speaking the truth of God's word into the matter of marriage. It cost him his life. It's not an academic matter. Here is an attempt by enemies to discredit Jesus, to brand him as an opponent of the law of Moses. Well, let's bring it down to the reality of 2016, where we all live. This is not an academic matter. Marriage and divorce. It's an issue that affects everyone. I know of no one whose family has not been in one way or another affected. As I mentioned earlier, this is a difficult text. Like last week's, what does Jesus think about sin and hell? Here it's what Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce. Well, how will Jesus respond to the Pharisees' question? Let's find out. Because Jesus is not just teaching the crowds in general here. He's going to teach the Pharisees in particular, and indeed the crowds are still there, and so they're listening in. In his typical fashion, Jesus responds to a question with a question. His opponents ask, what is permissible? What is permitted? And Jesus points to what is commanded. He answers, what did Moses command you? Jesus now puts this discussion where it belongs. What does the Bible say? It's interesting, I think the uh, Pharisee's attitude here reminds us all of a man who's just been given a loan from the bank and then he asks, under what conditions will he not have to pay it back? Think about that when you're getting a loan. Well, how do the Pharisees answer Jesus' question? We see it in verse 4. They go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and they says, say, Moses allowed a man. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away because of finding some indecency in her. Now, before we go further, we need to realize that at this time in Jewish thought, in the early first century, there are two schools of thought. There is the conservative view and the liberal view. My friends, it's been with us forever, okay? We're not going to be able to get away from the conservative view and the liberal view. The conservative view, um, headed up by a, a rabbi by the name of Shammai, he was the strict view man. And he said only sexual unfaithfulness by the wife gives permission for divorce. But the liberal party, headed up by Rabbi Hillel, was more lenient. In, his, in Jewish writing of the day, we read, no kidding, that for spoiling supper, finding someone more attractive, that is grounds to end the marriage and write a certificate of divorce. Well, Jesus responds and answers Deuteronomy 24. And in doing so, Jesus doesn't take sides. Jesus is not going to take the conservative side. He's not going to take the liberal side. Notice Jesus responds and he points out hardness of heart. 
He points out the true intention of Deuteronomy 24, the, the true intention of Moses, that it was a text here of concession, not of intention, because Jesus reminds them that the purpose of Moses' legislation was to limit the damage, to limit the fallout of divorce, to protect the rights of women. Indeed, it was intended to create a legal barrier to a man sinning as he pleased. It was to protect the rights of women, to restrict the ease at which divorce could take place. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which you heard read earlier, divorce is tolerated, but neither is it authorized or sanctioned. But the Pharisees had twisted this because what was intended to be a barrier against license, some had turned into a bridge to easy divorce. Jesus doesn't take sides. He goes to God's word and he goes positive. He elevates. I'm just thinking of something I heard recently. When, when they go low, we go high. Well, Jesus goes to the highest. He goes to the word of God. He goes positive. He elevates and lifts the conversation by discussing not divorce, but rather marriage. The Pharisees, you see, wanted to talk about divorce and Jesus insisted on talking about marriage because Jesus' primary interest was in restoring mankind, men and women, to their original design and original lifestyle. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus elevates the conversation. How about us? Are we in the habit of elevating the conversation to God's word? Are we in the habit of, of when talking with our fellow believer, instead of starting off with I think or whatever, we say, you know what, let's go to God's word together. Do we elevate the conversation? We see Jesus here going back to the creation narrative, back to square one, back to the beginning. Because for Jesus, when it comes to marriage, the answer really is in Genesis. We see in verse 6, God creates. God is the creator of mankind, male and female, as we read in chapter 1 of Genesis. And in verses 7 through 8, we see not only did God create, but we see man marries. No longer are they two, but they are one flesh. And we saw that twice in Genesis chapter 2. And then in verse 9, we read these words. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is reminding those listening to him, that marriage is lifelong and exclusive. Jesus' final pronouncement here in response to the Pharisees' test, it grounds the sanctity of marriage in the authority of God himself. God, not man, is Lord of marriage. Mark now shifts the scene from the public to the private, from being with the crowds and Pharisees now to being with his disciples. So we see in verses 10 through 12, Jesus 
teaching his disciples then as well as now. The disciples need an explanation. They need understanding because they cannot but recognize that Jesus' reply to the Pharisees is staggering. The disciples are shocked. They are stunned. In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 19, we read that they regard Jesus' standards of marriage as impossible. And they say, well, if it's, if it's like this, it's better than not to marry. Notice again what Jesus says to his disciples. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Pharisees were asking about what is permissible. They were looking for the loophole, the way out. Here, Mark leaves any kind of exception out precisely because he wants to make the point Jesus was making. And that point is this. It's not about how to get out of a marriage but rather the importance of staying in a marriage. Because Jesus wants his disciples, those closest to him, not to think through the possibilities of divorce, but rather to embrace the divine intention for marriage. Now, those of you that got the uh, preparing for worship email, had you read it, may notice I asked you to read some other passages along with Mark 10. Because this is not the only place where Scripture addresses marriage and divorce. The analogy of Scripture, a helpful, central rule of interpreting Scripture, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. We believe here in the whole counsel of God. So what did Jesus do when talking about this issue? He went back to the beginning. He went to Genesis. Now, as you all know, we have a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that this church says we believe is an accurate summary of the teaching of God's Word. And in our chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of marriage and divorce, it speaks of two exceptions, that biblically and before the Lord, a marriage can end. And in Matthew 19, we see an exception being of sexual immorality, the Greek word being porneia. And there's another exception that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Here, in looking at those two passages... Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. We see that divorce is not by any means commanded. Why? Because there's always the the, uh, possibility of repentance and faith. Divorce is not commanded, but it is allowed. Exceptions here simply recognize the reality of sin. They don't excuse it. Marriage and discipleship. Why are there no exceptions here in Mark? Why is this an unbelievably strict, tight, high standard? 
What's Jesus been talking about? Discipleship. And here is discipleship in the context of marriage. My friends, if you haven't already realized it yet, discipleship is hard. It is difficult. Marriage is hard and difficult. Why? Because it involves denying yourself, suffering, and following Jesus. Think with me for a moment about marriage vows. How easy is it is to stay married when things are better, richer, and healthy, right? When do the vows kick in? The vows kick in when it's hard, when things are worse, when things are poor, when there is sickness. One of my former professors, Paul Tripp, says this, let me give you a biblical view of marriage. It is a flawed person married to a flawed person in a fallen world, but with a faithful God. The quote that you see on page five, the something to think about, quote comes from a book entitled, When Sinners Say I Do. A great title. The very title helps men and women approaching marriage uh, take off the rose-colored glasses. Marriage. Oh my, how much in the last few years our society views have changed about marriage, what marriage is, what constitutes marriage. But we all know that the stability of the family, indeed the stability of society, depends on marriage as, as demonstrated and declared in the scriptures. Because Jesus is saying true discipleship is to be lived out in light of this ultimate divine intention of marriage. And these commands in verses 10 through 12 is to be understood in light of the call to discipleship that we saw begin in chapter 8, verse 34. If you haven't figured it out right now, what Jesus is doing is he's issuing a warning. And what is the warning concern? The danger of a hard heart. You know, those of you that go in to see the doctor, he or she asks you a bunch of questions, right? What's bothering you? They're asking questions about the presenting issue because they want to get to the deeper issue, right? They're asking about the symptoms so they can figure out about the actual disease. The presenting issue here is divorce, but the deeper issue is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. The heart that refuses to listen to or obey God. Remember the parable of the sower in chapter 4, verses 1 through 20? Hearing God's word, listening to God's word, obeying God's word, bearing fruit. Here, Jesus once again exposes the hard-heartedness of those that are only concerned with the eternal. A disciple, Jesus is saying over and over again through his teaching, 
is someone who has a heart that is not self-seeking nor self-defensive. Rather, it's a heart that has been so softened that the need for radical change is recognized, which, among everything, affects the attitude toward marriage and divorce. Because as a disciple of Jesus pursues holiness, he or she also pursues God's mercy and grace. In a 2004 article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling entitled, and listen to this title, The Church's Role in Preserving and Healing Marriages, the author Ken Sandy, president of what was then Peacemaker Ministries, makes this following comment, quote, of all the people you would expect to be faithful to their vows and to fight for their marriages, Christians should be at the top of the list. We know that God instituted marriage as a lifelong covenant. We understand the implications of sin. We can draw power, we can draw on the power of the gospel. We have so much to motivate us and strengthen us. And yet our marriages are falling or failing with the same frequency and in the same ways as those in the world are failing. The effects of this massive church-wide failure are enormous. Christian families are disintegrating before our very eyes, often through bitter court battles that leave lifelong wounds. Thousands of Christian children are robbed of the security and unified guidance that God intended their parents to provide, and they learn at an early age that vows to God are less important than seeking personal pleasure. Many adults and children who have gone through divorce leave the church altogether, and all the while the world is given yet another convenient excuse to label Christians as hypocrites and to laugh in our faces when we try to tell them about the redeeming grace of God. Of all people, we have God-given resources. Some of you are married. Some of you are not married. Some of you will get married. Some of you will never get married. We don't know. But for those of you who are married, hear this text as, a, as permission granted to get help. So many husbands and wives are afraid to get help in their marriages because they don't want to be judged. Because if I have to raise my hand and reach out for help, then I'm already failing as a husband. I'm already failing as a wife. My friends... We here believe in total depravity, don't we? Not that we are depraved as we could be and as evil and wicked as we possibly could be, but there's no area of our life that's unaffected. Our marriages need the grace of the gospel. Our marriages need help that one another can provide. Most often by the time a husband or wife raises the, the hand for help, there has been so much broken trust, so much difficulty. To be sure, God's means of grace can, 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 can work miracles and bring life out of death, absolutely. But my friends, in this area of your life or in any area, ask for help. 
Ask for help. Help is available. The church is set up to provide help as we all look to the Lord. Well, let's conclude with three statements from this specific text, from the Gospel of Mark in general, and the entire Bible. We see in verses 1 through 12 that marriage is God's design. It's ordained and established by God. It is a solemn institution. We heard that from the Book of Common Prayer. We heard that from the Secretary of State of Ohio. We also hear it from God in His Word. Marriage is good. It is to be honored. It is a covenant of companionship. One man, one woman marriage is not a restriction of liberty as the world would say, but rather it's the sphere of its enjoyment and development. It's a gift from God the Father subject to His commands and aided by His grace. And we see in our text discipleship in the context of marriage Think with me. Husbands and wives are, instead of trying to be great, I mean, think about the marriages when the unspoken word is, I'm the greatest. It's not about trying to be great. Rather, it's a call to serve and recognize one another, to suffer with one another, and to be at peace with one another. But let's step beyond these verses and look at all of Mark. Unbiblical, that is unlawful divorce, is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is not a biblical ideal, but it is a biblical reality. Jay Adams, in his marvelous book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible, says this, quote, Divorce, even when proper, always is occasioned by someone's sin. At its best, then, divorce always brings misery and hurt. That's why God hates it. But remember in Mark 3, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And now, the entire Bible. Human marriage, marriage between one man and one woman, portrays the relationship between Christ and His church. I hope you've already read the something to think about quote, the mystery has been revealed. We see in marriage a picture of Christ's pursuit of us his bride, the church, we just sang about it. We see in Scripture Christ's love for us, His bride, the church. And in Scripture we see Christ as husband, His faithfulness to us, His bride. My friends, those of you who are here trusting in Christ alone for salvation, as he is offered in the gospel, are presently engaged to Christ. One day our marriage will be consummated with the full intimacy, love, and joy expressed and experienced 
between Christ and his people. We see this in the announcement of the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Indeed, one day we will all see with our eyes what we have been able to see only thus far by faith. The truth of the promise where God says over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people. As great and as wonderful as earthly marriages can be, unlike those marriages at this wedding, we will hear no statement of until death do us part. Indeed, in this marriage, there will be no death to tear apart. Rather, we will live and be united to our Lord and Savior forever. Friends, wherever you are today, in marriage, rest and rely on the faithfulness of the Lord to his people. We will all disappoint one another and let one another down, but there is only one, only one to whom his vows to us are sure and certain. Rest and rely on Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that, though difficult, nonetheless draws our attention to our faithful Savior, the one who will never leave us, the one who will never let us down, the one who, um, who's, who will fulfill his promises. Father, would you enable your people and your church to uh, continue in the midst of great worldly pressure to understand and live out the reality of marriage as, as, um, as determined by your word. Father, enable us to elevate conversations with one another to your word. And, oh, Father, help us as we live and serve in a sinful and fallen world to minister your mercy and grace to one another. Oh, Father, enable us to demonstrate kindness and compassion to those who have been wounded by this sin. Father, have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.